are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And as I mentioned, we're on page 377 this evening uh, with hypothesis 43, and we are picking up with letter B, Abba Isaiah. And uh, the fathers have been leading us through uh, what it means to resign ourselves to divine providence, and maybe better said, to trust in divine, divine providence and the will of God in our life, and even his capacity to work through things that uh, are at times a spiritual test for us on so many different levels. Uh, even the sufferings that we bear, things that seem contrary to reason, uh, where we might wonder what God is doing through through this in our life and what he might be accomplishing through it. And uh, this will be a segue for us into discussing humility, uh, which among the fathers is the greatest of the virtues. And as we will see in the next hypothesis, it's described as impregnable to the demons, that this is the one thing that they cannot mimic uh, of all the virtues. And so he or she who has this virtue uh, is protected in so many different ways uh, from their assaults. Uh, so long as we cling to God uh, and do not trust in our own private judgment, but rather cling to his will, uh, we are protected from many different things in the spiritual battle. So these are the things that we'll be discussing. Again, we're on page 377. Abba Isaiah writes, Brother, if you encounter some difficulty, whether in your work or in conversation or in thought, do not seek your own will at all, but endeavor to discover with care what God's will is and put it into practice completely, even if its performance occasions some toil. You should believe with all your heart that the will of God is advantageous to you in a matter surpassing all human understanding. For the commandment of God is eternal life, and he who seeks it will not be deprived of any good thing. What a beautiful paragraph, certainly to begin with, but uh, every sentence, I think, captures something for us that uh, is comforting, uh, a source of consolation for us as well, is challenge to not to seek our will at all. Uh, and in a day such as our own, where we can be quite willful, uh, even in the spiritual life and our particular spiritual practices, 
to to hear this uh, can be challenging for us, especially uh, when we are told when it goes completely against human understanding. Uh, this is the difficult thing for us. Uh, we are uncomfortable with uh, the unexpected and the unknown and the uncontrollable and things without boundaries and where we cannot see perhaps the, the fruit of our labors or the fruit of the ascetic life. Uh, and perhaps even within the context of our prayer, uh, do not receive much in the way of consolation. And so to be able to trust in the will of God in those times can be very difficult to let go of our understanding and cling simply to the promise of God. And as Isaiah describes here, the commandment of God is eternal life. And so long as we hold on to his commands, uh, we will be deprived of nothing. And again, you know, this throws us back, I think, to so many of the different things that we've read in Climacus and in previous hypotheses that life is ever so brief, a blink of an eye. And what we are offered and promised to in Christ is eternal life and love. And if we are able to keep our focus on the moment and to keep our focus on those truths, Come what may, we are able to endure at times even the greatest of crosses. And uh, I think the truth of this only is something that comes through experience. This is not something that you learn from books, even if it is the Evergetinus. Uh, I think this is something that comes through uh, living the life of faith and persevering through the trials and the difficulties and the darknesses of our life and coming out the other side of them. Uh, and even uh, in those times where perhaps we have failed uh, to hold on in that faith and trust in God, that often, uh, even when we are humbled by it and where we see that we've turned away from it, God and his mercy will still reveal to us uh, the, the, the truth that he was seeking for us to understand and to strengthen us for, for the battle that uh, lies ahead. And, um, and that's always the consoling thought, you know, that there's not one of us here who's perfect in that faith and that God will work even in and through and often sometimes even in the most powerful ways through our failures that we will see with uh, striking clarity, uh, certainly our poverty, but sometimes we will see with a perfect clarity at those moments, the wisdom of God, the things that we did not see that human understanding and ju judgment was blind to. And I think we've all probably had those moments in our life where we saw things with clarity. We saw the truth of certain circumstances, things people did or said, or we, and we made our judgments and decisions based upon those things, only to find out that what we saw is, was a partial truth. And, uh, and perhaps very partial, you know, a mere uh, fraction of certainly what God sees. And that can be deeply humbling to have that revealed to us 
and especially when it's a matter of some import and where we have said things or done things that uh, have lacked charity or certainly lacked humility. And uh, this is what uh, the, the fathers would preserve us from, that in some ways it's only our resignation to the providence of God that we, we free ourselves from that path, that self-assurance that we often carry within us, that we see the truth, we know it, and we need to communicate it to everyone else uh, in order that they might get it. Letter C from Abba Mark. Some people call wise those who are capable of making distinctions between perceptible things. Wise, however, are those who have control over their volitions. He who does not make his will subject to God becomes entangled in his own pursuits and becomes a pawn of his adversaries. When you want to settle some involved issue, you should seek in this regard what is pleasing to God, and thereby you will find a beneficial solution. In those matters with which God is content, the whole of creation acquiesces. But in those for which he has an aversion, creation likewise is opposed to them. He who objects to distressing circumstances is, without knowing it, in conflict with the command of God, but he who accepts them because he is truly aware of their causes waits patiently on the Lord, as scripture says. When a time of testing comes, do not inquire why or from what cause it has come, but be sure to endure it thankfully and without resentment. Goodness sake, a very difficult paragraph. And I think we want to, to spend a lot of time with it, more time, I think, with prayer than in discussing it. Uh, but the, this is also said by St. Anthony, you know, true intelligence, true wisdom is not found uh, in a person who trusts simply in his own judgment, his own point of view, but one who is obedient to the will of God. Or as Abba Marx says here, uh, who have control over their volitions. And so don't immediately react to circumstances or react to the, their judgment or emotions. Uh, and so become a pawn, as Mark says, to uh, their adversaries. That we've talked about this in the past, that our emotions as part of being a human being often do reveal a kind of truth to us that we will perceive something that moves us deeply. And especially perhaps where there's a kind of injustice involved or malice. And uh, so some, certainly our uh, emotions can be an expression of a perception. Uh, but the problem is, is, again, it's not always the fullness of the truth. We may be seeing something happening there and responding to it in an accurate way. But what is the full truth? What is the full measure of those circumstances? And how will God act in and through them? And one of the things I think we find ourselves doing is trying uh, through our own calculation to manipulate circumstances in such a way that they work out to our favor or where they work out in accord with our own judgment. 
of what, again, we think is good or what we think God wants from us and from others. And uh, in the eyes of God, the path to, to his ends and to our sanctification and salvation uh, might be radically different. And it's interesting here that Mark says that when it is contrary to the will of God, all of creation will oppose it. And so when we find ourselves in a situation where we are impeded from fulfilling our own will, there should be something within us, if we are wise, that allows us to slow things down and wait patiently on the Lord and not to act quickly, to think, well, okay, something's wrong here, or somebody's not acting in a way that would be helpful or has become an impediment in what they're doing or saying. So, you know, we need to say something or do something to alter that reality. And uh, Abba Mark tells us all of that would be fruitless, no matter what we would do. Uh, if this is contrary to the will of God, creation itself will rise up uh, to prevent us from going in that direction. Whereas if something is truly the will of God, uh, the waters will part, as it were, that God will make it happen in one form or another. And uh, so we don't have to go about tearing down walls that we think that are in our way or in the way of God. And uh, this tells us something very important for the spiritual life. And part of this is patience, uh, endurance, long-suffering, uh, that there is great wisdom that comes through this uh, when, we are, when we wait for God to reveal to us and open up to us the path that he desires us to take. And in, there are so many times where what emerges is greater than what we could ever imagine. It might not be easier, and it might not, it might not be at all what we had imagined in our mind, in the sense when we create scenarios of things that we would want to do or accomplish or that we feel that God is calling us to. Something different might emerge as we wait and respond to God in this timely fashion in his time, uh, that something will emerge that can be be beautiful and transformative on so many different levels. And in the way that things need to take place, uh, again, you know, the virtues that need to be perfected within us, or the vices that need to be overcome, are often not going to be clear to us at all, uh, especially the vices. Uh, I think, you know, that often we, uh, there, what's the psychological term for it? Egocentonic. So this is just how I am. This is how things are. You know, everybody should accept me for that too. And, but uh, how could I be wrong, you know, when it feels so right, you know, that, you know, I, this is uh, how I've come to see things and uh, let other people change kind of thing. Uh, so the, the counsel here is very important in the spiritual life. And this rushing, uh, I've seen so off, often undermine uh, individuals, including myself, 
uh, and even bring individuals to the edge of the abyss with one foot hanging over the edge. And uh, because they, they want to uh, force this will or again, control the circumstances in such a way that they make it happen. And I've often, you know, certainly in my work, I've seen it happen most of all in discernment, a vocation, that often an urgency will come over an, an individual, whether it's to get married or to enter into religious life. And, uh, but the reason those things can emerge uh, can, for example, religious vocation, there can be more of a romantic notion of it, or it can be God drawing a person into a deeper intimacy with him, drawing him more deeply into prayer or her into prayer, but not necessarily an indicative of a vocation, that that uh, desire is something that has to not only to be tested over time, but mature, that a person, even if they are called along that path, is prepared then to make that decision. And the same is true for marriage, that uh, certainly the decision to marry uh, should be based on more than sensuality and sensibility, that you're physically and emotionally attracted to the other. That's how, how things work, of course, and God uses those things to draw people together, but there's a whole reality about who the other is, a mystery about who the other is, and whether or not we are called into that relationship. And one of the things that it's often put on the back burner or swept under the rug is faith. I, I can't tell you the number of couples, you know, that have come forward for marriage where, you know, there are different faith backgrounds and not that those things are an impediment to marriage. In fact, the church works to be very pastoral in this regard, but they have to be addressed and thought about because, you know, when you plan the wedding, all of a sudden those are going to come to the forefront when you have a child, you know, to whether you baptize the child or how, what faith you're going to raise them in. All of a sudden the things that we, you know, we thought well, love will overcome it. We love each other so much, we'll, we'll make our way through these things as they come up. Well, things don't work that neatly. And, uh, and so it becomes important on so many different levels to follow the counsel here, because the adversary will, will take advantage of everything that he possibly can. Any comments on these first two sections? Okay, letter D from St. Diaticus. We men are all created in the image of God, but to be in his likeness belongs only to those who have brought their freedom in subjection to God through great love. That is when we do not belong to ourselves. It is then that we resemble him who reconciled himself to us through love. And so, it's one thing, it's a wonderful distinction. It's one thing, we're made in the image and likeness of God. But the likeness, what brings us into that likeness is a kind of conformity to Christ. When we put on the mind of Christ, when we begin to live the life 
and embrace the, the love that has reconciled us to God. So a humble love, an obedient love. Uh, this is where we take on the likeness of our God when we begin uh, to live as Christ has lived. And uh, we see, I think, this movement in our own day, uh, again, to allow personal opinion or judgment to replace something like conscience, which means to know with God. And conscience is not infallible. It has to be formed and shaped by what has been revealed to us in Christ, uh, what uh, is made known to us uh, through the gospel, through the fathers, through our living a life of intimacy with the Lord through the sacramental life. All these things form and shape the conscience in such a way that we can know with God, that we develop that purity of heart that allows us to uh, gain the fruit of discernment. And the more that we move away from conscience to uh, personal judgment or opinion or replace it with that, the further we, we get away, I think, from our capacity to discern so many different things within our life. We become the plaything of, of the adversary, that we're easily manipulated uh, by him and by others and by the realities of our life and even by ourselves, perhaps most of all, by ourselves. We, become, we manipulate ourselves by our own uh, you know, rationalizations, and our own appetites. From the Gerontikon, Abba Isidore said, the wisdom of the saints is that they recognize the will of God. For a man overcomes all things through obedience to the truth, since he is an image and likeness of God. The most fearful of all the passions is for one to follow his own heart, that is to obey his own will and not the law of God. This passion appears at the outset to afford a man some respite, but later it turns into internal mourning because he has lost sight of the mystery of the divine economy and has not found the way to God that he might walk therein. What a beautiful uh, paragraph that, again, to uh, be conformed to God is to embrace his will and to be obedient, ab adore, as we've talked about, this capacity to listen, to hear uh, what God speaks to us, the truth that he makes known to us. Uh, but this uh, passion that takes over uh, to follow one's own heart, and how often do we hear that in our, our day and age? Uh, as if that is the guiding light for us, not God and his will for us, but our own hearts. And it's interesting how uh, Isidore puts it here, that, that it does offer a momentary respite, that when we fulfill that desire, the desires of our heart, we can go through a period of emotional peace and experience a kind of joy in that. But what Isidore tells us is that it's not something that endures. 
that the truth eventually begins to manifest itself and what develops is a kind of internal mourning because we are not living in accord with the identity that is truly ours in and through Christ. And this sorrow, this mourning uh, can be devastating to us and often isn't something that's clearly understood. You know, I think oftentimes pe people will experience or we have experienced times in our life of desperation or desolation, darkness, empty, emptiness, and, uh, and don't know the reason why. And often the reason for it is this movement away from God, as well as away from our identity in him that can take place for a whole host of reasons, uh, not necessarily direct, uh, uh, disobedience or sin, but sometimes simply negligence or indifference to that love and that relationship, uh, both in terms of how we enter into it uh, through our prayer, but also in our love of others and en engaging others in accord with the will of God. And so we might have, again, so many different things within this world that on uh, an external level seem to be blessings, but internally there can be a great darkness. And we, you know, we hear those stories that, you know, uh, cautionary tales, if you will, of those who suddenly become rich or famous, you know, athletes or actors, actresses, you know, or that all this, you know, discover that even having all of those things, uh, they can feel internally very fragmented and relationships fall apart and uh, they can find themselves alone and isolated, uh, even precisely because of the abundance of the material things that they have, that they find themselves cut off from others and sometimes cut off from God. Anthony writes, some people like me have a strong attachment to duty and to be incompetent to fulfill perceived duty is very difficult. Yes, you know, I see what you're saying there, that it's not simply our living out the gospel and our loving is not being dutiful. And those two things can uh, sort of uh, come into conflict with each other that in a whole host of areas, whether it's in relationships, marriage, or in religious communities, or, you know, serving in a diocese, that it's different, there's a difference between dutiful, doing all one's jobs, or doing all the things that one should do. And there's a difference between that and loving, and giving oneself and love. One might be imperfect, and not always be the most responsive or have weaknesses in, in character and yet love and truly give themselves in love to the other or their community. Uh, or, uh, but there are those that can be dutiful where they seem to be doing everything right, but can be absolutely lacking in love or be so focused upon the thing to be done that they lose sight of God and the others 
involved. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, I think, uh, might be a good example from the New Testament in this regard, that they were dutiful in, in terms of fulfilling the law. And as well as all the prescriptions that begin to surround the law, the pure purification codes and, and things such as that, that they kept them with a radical strictness and, uh, you know, the straining, you know, wine through a gauze, you know, make sure that nothing, no impurity got into the drinks, cleansing every pot, you know, or beds, everything we are told. And yet they, could be capable of this deep pridefulness in the sense of judging those that were in their eyes, the hoi polloi, you know, the people of the fields and those who knew nothing of the law, you know, or fidelity to it in the way uh, that they saw it. And in the end, the, the lack of that love and the dutifulness became frightfully apparent, uh, you know, as they engaged Christ, you know, first driving him out, you know, that he became a threat uh, because of the, how he spoke with this authority, even though he himself, you know, wasn't officially a rat rabbi, and yet his words spoke to the heart, hearts of the people, and there, a jealousy emerged, uh, and then uh, a kind of envy that wanted, that led them to want then to destroy him. And I think within the life of the church, this kind of dutifulness can lead to that, that, you know, if, whether it's a person in authority or a person seeking in their mind to protect certain truths, you know, about the faith, there can be this kind of dutifulness that uh, grows so large that it becomes uh, something that blocks out the other or uh, leads to this kind of judgment of the other where it blinds them again to the fact that the person is made in the image and likeness of God. And so I'm glad you brought that up because. Uh, dutifulness can have the appearance of love and it can feel like love to us. I've done everything. I've given everything to you. Even, you know, the apostles fall into it. You know, when Jesus says, you know, the, you know, rich will only enter into the, it's easier for the rich to, to enter into the kingdom than, or it's, I'm sorry, harder for the rich to enter into the kingdom than for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. And then immediately, you know, Peter says, well, we've left everything. What, what do we get? You know, that uh, we, we got what you were teaching and we sacrificed a lot. And then we know James and John, you know, vie for positions of power. We want to sit one at your right, one at your left in, in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, behind that is this kind of dutifulness. I'm a, a faithful follower. And, but we're, we're called to be something more than that. And this is where a kind of moralism and uh, perfectionism 
And I think sometimes Pope Francis brings this up. And I know at times people get bent out of shape by, by it, but it's not untrue that there can be a kind of perfectionism uh, that really begins to drive individuals to this point where it, it, it closes off the movement of the spirit in people's lives. Now we have to be careful of not swinging in this opposite direction into a kind of antinomianism, you know, where a kind of lawlessness uh, and where we, you know, make changes willy nilly, you know, where we're being again guided by on an emotional level rather than being attentive to the will of God. And so I think what we're taught here is to avoid both, both things. It, that brings us to the end of that hypothesis. Anyone have any comments about it as a whole before we move on to the next? Okay. Hypothesis 44. Humility is completely impregnable to demons. How humility is engendered and what its power is. So how we foster it and where the real power of this uh, where this virtue, uh, where the real power of this virtue comes from. And we are presented here first with uh, a section from the life of St. Pacomius. And if you remember from previous talks, he's the first really to create a role for those living in community. But up until this point, you know, men had gone, men and women had gone into the desert uh, to embrace the life of greater solitude, but also uh, strict discipline, asceticism. Pacomius uh, begins to, then to write a rule for those living the common life and seeking this life together. A man by the name of Silvanus, who was formerly an actor, went to the monastery of St. Pacomius, wishing to renounce the world and to become a monk. After they had announced him to the saint, the latter summoned him and said, take note, brother, given indeed that your previous life in theater impels your soul towards that which is worst, that monastic life depends upon toil and requires a vigilant soul and chaste thoughts so that you might be able, with God's grace, to resist him who afflicts us. So Pacomius already you know, out of his experience and wisdom uh, warns Savanus that if he's choosing this life, that uh, his past discipline could be something that's a vulnerability for him. He was an actor. And as we often struggle with, we could pretend to be Christians. We could play a part, including playing the part of being a monk. And so he warns him against all hypocrisy and in entering into the life, that this is not a game, that there is a toil that goes along with this that involves uh, a radical living in the truth, humility, truthful living. And so one cannot be an actor. And if you, as you know, the, the word hypocrisy uh, has that as its root. It is to be, be an actor. It's to put on a mask, to pretend. And so he warns him against this right from the beginning of his entrance. 
After Savanus had agreed to fulfill all that Pacomius taught him, the great man received him into the brotherhood. But having struggled for a long time, Savanus began again to neglect his salvation, to be enticed into wantonness, and to take pleasure in foolish gesturing. He even reached the point of singing the obscene songs of the theater podium uh, without any shame in front of the brothers of the monastery. So he began to revert to his previous life, performing <laughs> for the community, as it were, songs that were done in the, the theater, which could be quite, quite body. And as we are told here, even obscene. The saint immediately summoned Savanus, and after 20 years of ascetic life, ordered him to cast off his monastic schema before the brothers to put on his worldly garments and to expel him from the monastery. Savanus then fell at the feet of the Holy Father and besought him, forgive me this one more time, Father, and I believe that the master who saves the ailing will help me to remain here, repenting for all the negligence in which I've lived up to now, so that you may be the first to rejoice at the transformation of my soul and to give thanks to God for it. And so, you know, Pacomius you know, confronts him with the truth of it and also the weight of it. That again, the monastery, even for one who's been there for 20 years, is not for pretending. And in that pretending, uh, especially when it begins to break down the ascetic life, can undermine the life of the community as a whole, uh, as his actions had begun to do. St. Picomius replied to this plea, you know well how many things I put up with in you, even to the point many times of striking you, something which I never, I have never done to any other man. Indeed, I've never even reached out my hand to another person, but in your case, I was compelled to use physical force, which caused more pain to me than it did to you, since we are linked through spiritual compassion. Besides, I use this severe measure for no other reason than for your salvation, so that at least in this way, I might be able to correct your faults. So Pacomius is drawn to, you know, the, the furthest margins of discipline uh, for Savanus. You know, he is pushed to do something that he, uh, he's never done and something that he even acknowledges breaks down uh, is a sign of the breaking down, but also breaks down even further the relationship that exists between them and must exist between them, which is compassion, you know, a suffering with each other and bearing with each other that uh, Pacomius in his role of superior had been brought to this extent that he had to act extremely severely with him. Since you received so many admonitions and yet were unwilling to change for the better, and since even after the drubbing I gave you, you failed to choose what is in your interest, how can I now allow you, an ailing member, to associate any longer with the flock of Christ? Will not the 
uh, mange of the one spread to all and in a short time harm a significant part of the brotherhood. So uh, in some ways, Pacomius is doing what we find in the scriptures uh, when they talk about spiritual uh, correction, you know, that this likely took place privately then with others who would be responsible for formation. And then it's brought to the point where Procomius uh, has to, you know, the scriptures say, hand him over to the evil one that allow, allow him to experience the full consequence of his sin with the hope that the mercy of God will draw him out of it by allowing him see, to see the darkness and to experience the dark, darkness of it. And so that would be certainly for a monk to be expelled from the monastery even after 20, 20 years. And so a devastating uh, discipline, of course. But part of this was, as we had said, to protect the community as a whole. Uh, that it would under, could undermine the, the, the life fully. These then were the objections that the father presented to Silvanus, but the latter persevered in his appeal and assured St. Pacomius that from that time on, he would correct himself. The saint asked for guarantees that he would not persist in the same behavior. Then Petronius a holy and wondrous man consented to guarantee that Silvanus would keep his promises and the saint forgave him. After blessing him, he handed him over to Petronius. So there is a monk within the monastery that vouches for him and in a sense takes responsibility for him and to, as it were, guarantee his commitment that he would aid him and this, this conversion. As soon as Silvanus had received forgiveness, he humbled himself to su such a degree that he became a model and example for many, or rather for the entire brotherhood on account of all the virtues to which he had attained and above all on account of his godly tears. So distinguished was he for his tear-stained compunction that even when he was eating, his tears often poured out like a river and he could not hold them back and they would be mingled with his food so that the words of the prophet King David were fulfilled in him. For I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. So the correction brings about this deep compunction and sorrow, you know, it just, it doesn't force him in again to this kind of dutiful uh, obedience where he's uh, just uh, walking lockstep with everybody in order not to be cast out, but it brings about this true and deep conversion that draws him back into this intimacy with God and uh, brings about this uh, incredible transformation by, by the grace of God. And uh, to the point that it exceeds even the virtue of all the other monks. He goes from being one who is drawing down the community uh, because of his negligence to one who becomes a model 
who is used then to lift up the community by his example. Uh, of course, it's not immediately seen uh, as being the case by the others. When his brother said that he was perhaps just doing this to impress strangers or other people, he protested that he often wanted to restrain his tears for just this reason, but was unable to do so. For their part, they insisted that while he could weep from compunction when he was on his own in a prayer, he should restrain himself at the time that he was eating in a refectory. For the soul, they said, could always be in a state of compunction, even without external tears. They persisted in their attempt to find out why he was weeping so much, and indeed dissuaded him, because, they said, we blush with embarrassment when we see you, and many of us cannot even eat. So, so you know, quite naturally, they, they doubt, you know, he was an actor after all, and perhaps this was fame, and that it was so extraordinary, so extreme, even at, uh, that even at meals, he became a distraction. So it seemed to them that perhaps this was a performance, just like he was up singing those obscene songs. Perhaps this was another kind of obscenity in the sense of uh, imitating or performing for others to see him. So crying, you know, at the drop of a hat, as it were, you know, if you're, if you have compunction, true sorrow, do it in your own room. Don't do it for goodness sake in the refectory where everybody could see you, uh, as if that necessarily could be controlled by him. He then replied to them, so my brothers, you do not want me to weep when I see myself being served by saintly men, even the dust of whose feet has value for me though I'm worthy of nothing. Should I not mourn that? Tell me, am I an actor worthy of being served by such holy men? I mourn my brothers because I fear daily lest the earth should swallow me up as it swallowed Dathan and Abiron, who attempted to offer incense to the, in the Holy of Holies with evil intentions and unclean hands. And I'm afraid because knowing as much as I do, I nonetheless neglect the salvation of my soul. This is why I'm not ashamed to weep, for I know many, my many sins. So even if I were to hand over my soul, I would not be doing anything strange. Since Savannah struggled so well and for quite some time, St. Pacomius the Great made the following announcement one day before everyone. So. You know, his response is that, you know, his awareness of his sin, the light that did shine uh, and, and upon it, you know, not only through Pacomius' rebuke, but one would have to say through the grace of God, the, the humility that came was so profound uh, that he could see the truth, that he was unworthy uh, to wipe the dust off the feet of the, the men uh, that he lived in community with. And so he tells them, you know, how can I not possibly mourn given what I had been? And then also given my negligence here, that I fear that if I were to leave off, even by force of what wells up within my heart, that I would fall back into the same, uh, the same darkness. 
So Pacomius begins to see what is taking place here and engages the community. Brethren, I declare before God that from the time that this synobium was established, I know of no one among the brothers who live with me who has emulated me with but one exception. When the brothers heard these words, some thought that he meant Theodore, others thought he meant Petronius, and yet others that he meant or Sy, I'm sorry, or Sisios. When Theodore plucked up the courage to ask St. Pacomius whom he had in mind, the great man was reluctant to speak. Since Theodore persisted more forcefully, and the senior brothers as well, and consistently sought to find out who this exception was, St. Pacomius responded as follows. If I thought that the man about whom I'm speaking were capable of being puffed up when he is praised, I would not identify him. But since I know that the more he is praised, the more he is humbled by the grace of Christ. For this reason, I will praise him without fear before you so that you might emulate his conduct. You, Theodore, and all who struggle as you do here in this monastery have bound the devil and thrown him like a sparrow beneath your feet. And daily with the grace of Christ, you trample him into the earth. But if you should become careless about yourselves, I fear lest the captive devil may rise up from under your feet and launch an assault against you. Brother Silvanus, however, whom we were going to expel from our monastery, monastery a short while ago on account of his negligence, has now totally subdued the devil and destroyed him so that the evil one can no longer appear in his presence. And in the end, by his extreme humility, he has completely overcome the devil. Now you, because uh, you have performed virtuous deeds, rest your confidence on what you have accomplished up to now. But the more he struggles, the more he presents himself to all of us as a beginner, constantly thinking with all his soul and all his mind that he is worthless. This is precisely why he weeps. And easily at that, for it is easy for him to abase himself, and he does not reckon any of his accomplishments to be important. Nothing so weakens the devil as real humility that is practiced with one's whole soul. Savannah struggled in this way for another eight years, apart from the preceding 20, and completed the course of his asceticism. His sanctity was proclaimed by St. Pacomius, who said also about his death that he saw a multitude of holy angels receiving his soul with great joy ascending to heaven in order to offer it to Christ as a choice sacrifice. So, this story is more powerful than perhaps we might grasp on first reading it, you know, because it's not about simply the conversion of a man from his sin. Uh, it is speaking to us about the, the value of, of humility uh, that so transforms a person and so conforms them to Christ 
that the devil, demon has no power over them whatsoever. And so on some level, even though they had crushed the evil one through their asceticism and through their fidelity, that they were indeed men of virtue, great virtue, in fact, uh, that what is truly powerful about Sylvanus is that he saw the reality about himself, the, his real poverty, and that he could not make, uh, as it were, a mountain out of a molehill of his virtue, out of his conversion, that he saw himself so clearly that even if he were praised, which Pacomius would not do to anyone else, not praise any of the other ones because of the fear that the devil would overcome them by pride. With Salvanus, because he had been so deeply humbled that he could, he could hold him up as a model, knowing that it would only humble him more. That he again saw himself as truly not uh, as an act, but truly as the least of those within the community and could not understand the grace that had been given to him, the profound mercy. And as we go through this hypothesis and the ones to follow, this image of humility is going to be set before us uh, that even if a person uh, were to sin, if they had humility, it, the fathers would see it greater than a person who lived virtue but had no humility, who had any, any ounce of pride within them. And this radically alters our view of the ascetic life and the spiritual life as a whole. It forces us to direct our attention to Christ, to see all as grace. Even our taking up the ascetic life and the discipline and the toil that we engage in is and must be driven by desire and love for the Lord, as well as an acknowledgement of our own poverty, that all things begin and end with grace, with Christ. And in the spiritual life, it becomes something that we can lose sight of, uh, that we can begin to see ourselves as doing good or condescending to others, uh, as if it's under our own power or by a virtue that we have obtained through our own hard work. And again, you know, being the, the worst of the sins, uh, it, is, it is also the most subtle. And so it can take those who are living this life of virtue in a very concrete way and uh, be acting in and through it. If you've read the Brothers Karamazov, uh, there are two monks in this monastery with a Alosha, is that how you say his name? I, I've forgotten. It's been a while since I've read it. But there was El, the Abba Zosima, who was this very holy monk, uh, but also very gentle and compassionate. But then there was this really ascetic monk. 
and who, you know, saw himself and believed himself to be uh, holy and certainly holier than this Zosima who was revered. And when Zosima dies, his body corrupts and everybody's sort of shocked by it. It begins to put off stench within a day or so. And, uh, you know, this monk and others believe it is because Zosima was in some way flawed or impure that his body corrupted quick, you know, quickly or did not remain incorrupt. And, uh, but in the judgment, reveal, you know, the pride that is within them. And, uh, and so within the religious individual, you know, pride is the most insidious of things. And, uh, and it is precisely you know, on the religious individuals that the evil one is going to work the most. And will even allow certain virtue uh, to be gained will uh, not afflict individuals in certain ways uh, to again create the illusion of having made certain gains in the spiritual life if they know or believe they can win the greater battle and cause the greater fall further down the line through pride that they will allow this gain in the spiritual life of sanctity if they can pull them down in some other fashion. Louise writes, would you say that the, he developed humility because he was humiliated and accepted due to the love embedded into the humiliation? Right, you know, I think humiliation is something, when we hear that word, I think, uh, we often think of ways that we've been treated or perhaps we, we've treated others and how destructive it can be. But we do not make ourselves humble. We are humbled by the realities of life and in a sense, humiliated. We are we're drawn out into the light of the truth and see the truth about ourselves very clearly. And that can be shaming to us, but in the end, it is something that's liberating. It destroys the illusion that we often cling to. And the most powerful of illusions can be that of holiness, of, right, of righteousness. And, uh, and so Sylvanus was humiliated in the sense that it got to the point where you know Pacomius was brought to the edge, you know, had acted with a corporal punishment. And after 20 years, Savannah was going to be expelled. And all this before the eyes of the whole community. And so there was this deep humiliation that then. Uh, gives birth then to humility, this truthful living, that he does not arise from those ashes to live the life that he lived before, but now forever to live in the fullness of the light of that truth, which is the poverty of sin and where sin can bring a person. 
and it had so perfected him that you know that all that could emerge from him were these purifying tears for the remainder of his life within the monastery. Anthony writes, I guess this answers a duty-driven person. If you just can't find a way to complete duty, you can either become vicious to attain the goal or accept the humility born from inability to complete the duty. That's right. You know, at times, you know, there can be certain virtues that we so desperately even want for ourselves, but want for ourselves. There, there can be ego and self-esteem tied in it. And God may allow us to struggle under the poverty of it. It can be like for us, Paul's thorn in the side. We don't know exactly what that was, but he pray, prays, you know, three times, you know, free me from this, you know, that in his mind, he certainly saw whatever it was as an impediment to living the fullness of, of life or the spiritual life. And so often we can feel that way too. Uh, but the answer that comes back to him is that, you know, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness that there was something greater in the poverty that Paul experienced through this, this thorn in the side, that if he lacked it, perhaps would not have achieved the level of sanctity or been, been able to, to perform the work that God wanted him to do. Uh, you know, you talk about here that you can either become vicious uh to attain the goal uh that you know we know that paul was fierce and you know that he was a pharisee by training and that even in his persecution of the christian community was fierce and uh that there was this zeal that paul had that while it could be a virtue if unperfected by the grace of God, it could be something become something that was could be extraordinarily destructive. The Paul could end up doing the same thing as a Christian that he was did as a Pharisee, uh, and have this kind of harshness towards others, lack compassion for for people in their poverty or in their struggle, and. One sort of wonders about that because when you see him in his writings, he could be ever so direct. He could correct people fiercely, but he also had this tender side where uh, he knew that one had to deal with the weaknesses of others, but not in a condescending way, as he says, but to please Christ. So, not in a condescending way in the sense of seeing himself as better. And so I'll put up with these people who are still uh, uh, still offering, you know, their food to the God, pagan gods, but he's doing it for, for the sake of love, both of Christ and for, for love of them, uh, realizing his own poverty. And, you know, we will often flee this virtue. And... Uh, 
and even when we read about it like this, I mean, I think there's part of us that resisted because to, uh, you know, uh, Michael Casey, a Trappist wrote this book, uh, Truthful Living, uh, Humility in the Role of St. Benedict. And so if you're looking for a contemporary writing about humility, it's, it's perfect, uh, very readable and accessible, but not watering down the truth. But this truthful living, uh is something that's very difficult to live if we think about it in the course of the day you know what that would mean for us you know that we will often rationalize the thoughts the behaviors our negligence whatever it might be in so many ways that become sort of natural so natural for us but this truthful living to live fully in the light of christ and the light of his love uh, means that we hold nothing back, that we allow everything within our heart to be illuminated by his love and his grace. And, uh, and so, you know, the spiritual life is an interesting thing because when even the struggle with the capital sins, you know, I think early on in the spiritual life, we struggle with them and by the grace of God, we can overcome them. But so many of the saints talk about multiple levels where we come across those again, where there's a deeper, deeper purification that takes place even on a spiritual level. To the point that John of the Cross talks about a kind of spiritual gluttony that has to be purified within us, that one could can have this uh, insatiable hunger for the things spiritual but again that it can be rooted in the self and in self-esteem more than it is in the love of god or the cons in the consolate maybe this would be the better way of putting it uh the consolation that comes through living the life of virtue uh that a person can gravitate towards that more for themselves than simply for the love of, of, of Christ. And so humility is, is the only path that uh, protects us from that. And, uh, and so as we go through this, I think we'll have a pretty clear understanding as to why the, the tradition as a whole, but why the fathers value it so highly, that it's not self-hatred, you know, it's not poor self-esteem. You know, it is simply this living in the truth, acknowledging the poverty of our humanity, of our need for God, of our capacity for self-deception. And if it brings tears as it did for Salvanus, those tears are, those, are tears of healing that are purifying. And as we see for Sylvanus, they uh, write, Marine writes, poor in spirit. They made him poor in spirit and transformed him in such a degree that, uh, that his virtue became greater than even the greatest monks in the monastery, Theodore and all the other ones that were named. So a lot packed in 
to that is a rather lengthy story. And again, these are one of the ones that I think if we go back and read them over again after thinking about them and talking about them, uh, it allows them to become even more powerful. I love these stories because I think they remain in the heart in a deeper way, in the, in the memory and imagination than just the sayings, you know. Uh, I think when they're tied to these real experiences, uh, uh, living examples of the monks, they become really powerful. I've come to admire the Evergatinas more and more uh, over the, the course of these years as we've spent time with it. So, any final comments on any, anything that we looked at? Anything unsettling? Life is potter's wheel. No, that's right. Okay, we'll close there for the evening. And have a great week, everybody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Now, Mary, God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.